Welcome to More, the podcast where Debbie will explore real-life applicable ways to get more out of your life. And here's Debbie. Hi, everybody out in More and out there in the world. My More Corps, I'm so excited to have you all listening again. I think I'm getting a little bit behind in um, putting up the podcast every other week. But um, Christmas is upon us, and I am just crazy busy with working full-time and trying to get Christmas for all of my students, my family, um, and the parents that come and volunteer to help me, and it's the neighbors, you know, Christmas. It's a crazy time, but um, anyway, I am going to put this podcast up today, and I'm so grateful for all of you that are listening. Um, My friend Annette has been listening every day um, since she started listening to the podcast, and she's like, now you got to record one every day, so I have something for every day. And oh, I'm so sad to disappoint her, but I don't think I can actually um, get a podcast out every day. I'm lucky to get them out every couple of weeks, but I am super excited about this new book, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. And it is a powerful book. It is one that you won't want to miss. The first few podcasts are going to be kind of an introduction until we get right into the meat of his book. But boy, there's a lot to be said here. And for me personally, a lot of things that I can work on. So I'm going to start and we're going to do the introduction today. And then the, the, the first um, chapter, I guess, is called that, um, Discovering the Happiness, Happiness Advantage. And these first like four chapters are introduction, and then his book has seven principles that the meat of the book is about. And we will get into those probably in a couple more podcasts. But there's definitely a lot to be said about the first few chapters and even the introduction. So he starts out and says, hey, if you observe people around you, you'll find that most people follow a formula that has been subtly or not so subtly taught to them by their schools, their company, their parents, or society. And that is, if you work hard, you will become successful. And once you become successful, then you'll be happy. And I have to be honest, I feel like I fall into this trap in my own personal life and in the way that I teach school. I I do believe that hard work is a really big, important component in life. Although I don't always believe that if you work hard, you'll become successful, and then you'll be happy. I do believe that you have to learn to be happy despite your circumstances. Um, but I know that we, we kind of gravitate that to that in our society. And he says that this pattern of belief explains what most often motivates us in life. We think, if I just get that raise or if I hit that next sales target, or if I get that grade, or if I make that team, or if I get invited to that party, I'll be happy. If I can just get that next next good grade, I'll be happy. If I lose those five pounds, I'll be happy, and so on. If I get married, I'll be happy. If I have kids, I'll be happy. So on, so on, so on. Success first, happiness second. And he says the only problem is that this formula is broken. 
And really, you know that he's tr- it's, what he's saying is true, that this isn't really how you get happiness. Because if it was true, that why aren't we long-term happy when good things happen to us? We'll have a baby, we get married, we make the team, and then we still find things to be unhappy about. And so his point in this book is that that is a, a reverse type of way of thinking, And he's going to talk a lot about how to fix that kind of thinking. If success causes happiness, then every employee who gets a promotion or a raise, every student who gets an A, everyone who's ever accomplished a goal of any kind should be happy, right? And so it's just not really that way. He he has been involved in this cutting-edge science, so he calls it, that we know now that happiness is the precursor to success. So if you're happy first, then you will be successful, not the result. So happiness is not the result of success. Happiness is what you, when you are happy, if you find happiness, you choose to be happy, then you will become successful. And he says that happiness and optimism actually fuel performance and achievement. Um, And so he says when we are happy first, that gives us the competitive edge. And he calls it the happiness advantage. He says that cultivating positive brains makes us more motivated, more efficient, more resilient, more creative, and more productive, which drives performance upward, which is really the theme of my podcast, more. So Sean has um, done a study. He has been to Harvard, Harvard um, University in Boston, Massachusetts, which is one of the most prestigious schools in the nation. And he said he went to Harvard on a dare, and he was raised in Texas, And he never even figured that he even could qualify to go to Harvard, such a prestigious school. But he ended up going on a dare, and he ends up staying there for 12 years of his life. So not only was he a student, but then he went on to become a professor there at Harvard. Sean shares this quote that was written in the 1600s by John Milton from the book, Paradise Lost, and Paradise, I looked it up, Paradise Lost is just a really long poem that's basically like a book. And in this book, there is this sentence, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And he says 300 years later, like when he was at Harvard, he observed this exact principle come to life. He said many of his students, as he was a professor there, saw going to Harvard as a privilege. I mean, it's a prestigious school. But others quickly lost sight of that privilege and started focusing only on how much work it was, the competition to do well, and the stress. And they fretted incessantly about their future, despite the fact that they were earning a degree that would open so many doors for them, they just got lost in the pressure. And they felt overwhelmed by every little setback instead of energized by the possibilities in front of them. 
And he said, after watching so many of the students struggle to make their way through, something dawned on him. Not only were these students the one, ones who seemed the most susceptible to stress and depression, they were the ones whose grades and ap- academic performance were suffering the most. And so he sees all of this while he's a professor at Harvard, and so he decides to go on a study. Now, after he saw this in the fall of 2009, he was, di- he was invited to go on a month-long speaking tour through Africa. And during the trip, a CEO, you know, president of a company from South Africa named Salim, took him to a little town just outside of Johannesburg that many inspiring people were from. Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu were from this um, little town. And he said that he visited a school next to a little town there that had no electricity and um, hardly any running water. He said, only when I was in front of these kids did it dawn on me that none of the stories that I usually use in his talks, that he uses in his talks, they weren't going to work because they didn't even have electricity or running water. He wasn't going to be able to share the research and experiences that all these privileged American college students and wealthy people have had. So he tried to open a dialogue and he started struggling for points of common experience between these little poor African kids. And he asked, um, he asked the kids, who here likes to do schoolwork? And he thought that um, all of the kids would not like that. But to his shock, 95% of the kids there in this little tiny town of Africa with no electricity and no running water, raised their hands and started smiling genuinely and enthusiastically about um, their homework and their schoolwork. And afterward, he was joking with Salim, the the CEO, about how they're so weird. And, And Salim said, they see schoolwork as a privilege. And so because it's something that their parents did not have and they didn't have the opportunities, which I think we take for granted so much what we have and then we don't value it. So then after he left Africa and he went back to Harvard and he saw students complaining about the things that all these little kids in Africa saw as a privilege, he started to realize just how much our interpretation of reality changes our experience of that reality. So let me say that again. Our interpretation of reality changes the experience of that reality. The students who are so focused on the stress and the pressure, the ones who saw learning as a chore, were missing out on all the opportunities right in front of them. But those who saw going to Harvard as a privilege and an opportunity succeeded and developed a positive mindset, even in the very same competitive environment. And so they were the ones that thrived. Then there was this study um, done by Harvard, a Harvard Crimson Poll. And here, this magnificent school with a wonderful faculty 
and a student body made up of some of the most, the best and brightest in America. He found that four out of five Harvard students suffered from depression um, during that school year that they did this study. And he goes on to say that this unhappiness epidemic and all these people that are unhappy, four out of five, is not unique to Harvard. A conference board survey released in January 2010 found that only 45% of workers were happy at their jobs, the lowest in 22 years of polling. Depression rates today are 10 times higher than they were in 1960, and I think this was around 2010, and I think the numbers have even gone up. He says every year the age of threshold of unhappiness sinks lower, not just at universities but across the nation. Fifty years ago, the average onset age of depression was 29 and a half years old. Today, it's almost exactly half that, 14.5 years old. So he wrote this book 10 years ago. And honestly, in my class, I deal with depression on a regular basis. And my kids are 10 and 11. So I believe that the numbers have even increased. And so he decided to do a study and um, to find out why so many people have depression. So he did a lot of studies and did a lot of learning, and the book is full of so many great um, things in this book. I'm just so excited to tell you about it. But he did a scatter plot, and if any of you know what a scatter plot is, basically you you study a lot of people and you get a lot of responses, and then the trend of the thing, the all the little people's responses go on a little dot on a diagram. And the plot either kind of moves up or moves down. And what he found was that there was an outlier, somebody that didn't fit in the norms. And that's what an outlier is, and I teach that in my class. And the outlier is what he studied, basically the one in five. The one person that um, was happy out of the five, and why were they happy? And he says, if we merely study what is average, we will remain merely average. So he went on to study to find these one in five people that are happy and to really, really get involved in their life. I think this is interesting what he said. He said, as late as 1998, there was a 17 to 1 negative to positive ratio of research in the field of psychology. In other words, for every one study about happiness and thriving, there were 17 studies on depression and disorder. Honestly, you hear about depression, anxiety, problems that people have everywhere you go. You don't hear about happiness. And he said, this is very telling. As a society, we've, we know very well how to be unwell and miserable and so little about how to thrive. I mean, parents come in and they'll tell me, their student has this issue, this issue, that issue. Never does one parent come in and say, oh, my kid is so happy. I mean, we focus on all the hard things. He said a few years back, there was an event that um, he was asked to speak at, and it was called Wellness Week. And these were the topics to be discussed. Monday was eating disorders. Tuesday was depression. Wednesday was drugs and violence. 
And Thursday was extramarital affairs, risky sex. And he said, Friday, who knows? Well, he said, that's not a a wellness week. It's a sickness week. And he says, we have a pattern of focusing on the negative. And it pervades our research and our schools and our society. And we have to learn to get outside of that. He talks about medical students who, in the first years of medical school, they go on and learn about all the possible diseases and symptoms that a person can get. And many of them become suddenly convinced that they have these diseases. You know, they become like little hypochondriacs. And he says, the point is, is as we'll see throughout this book, what we spend our time and mental energy focusing on can indeed become our reality. And it's finally time to shift the traditional approach to psychology and studies and start to focus more on the positive side of the curve. That we needed to study what works, not just what is broken. Thus, he says, positive psychology was born. So he started out at his school in Harvard, and he came, they created a class, he and his friend, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, I hope I'm saying his name right, but um, they started a class that was going to be um, a a class on happiness. Basically, the class was on happiness. So you're going to sign up for a college class called happiness, and you're going to risk taking a certain credit, you know, and instead of taking like economics or something, they're going to take happiness. And he started the class, and it was risky, just wondering if they would have people sign up. They were hoping to get even just 100 kids to get into this class that would be brave enough to give it a try. And he doesn't actually say how many tried the class at first, but obviously it spread because he said over the next two semesters, nearly 1,200 Harvard students enrolled in the class. That, he says, is one in every six students at one of the most hard-driving universities in the world. So he realized there was a real need to, to find happiness in our lives. And then he went on to say that what was going on here was like, was that like so many people in society today along the way to gaining their superb educations and their shining opportunities, they'd had absorbed the wrong lessons. They had mastered formulas in calculus and chemistry. They read great books. They learned world history, became fluent in foreign languages, but they never formally had been taught how to maximize their brain's maximize their brain's potential or how to find meaning and happiness. Armed with iPhones and personal digital digital assistance, they had multitasked their way through a storm of resume building experiences, often at the expense of actual ones. In their pursuit of high achievement, they had isolated themselves from their peers and loved ones and thus compromised the very support systems they so ardently needed. Repeatedly, I noticed these patterns in my own students who often broke down under the tyranny of expectations we place on ourselves and those around us. And he says that countless studies have found that social relationships are the best guarantee of heightened well-being and lower stress, both an antidote for depression and a prescription for high performance. But instead, these students had somehow learned that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. 
to an isolated cubicle in the library basement. They had been taught that if you work hard, you will be successful. And, oh, man, I feel like this is me to a T. Sometimes I love relationships. I love people. I love being around them. But sometimes I sacrifice relationships or spending time with people or just hanging out to get my to-do list done. And I worry about that sometimes. And I feel like all of us in our world, we're so in tune with, um, you know, our technology that we are isolating ourselves from each other more and more. And so I really feel like this is something that we need in our lives today. And it's something that I really need to work on. Um, and and uh, Sean goes on to say that we become more successful when we are happier and more positive. And he says that it turns out that our brains are literally hardwired to perform at their best, not when they are negative or even neutral, but when they are positive. Yet in today's world, we ironically sacrifice happiness for success only to lower our brain's success rates, our hard-driving likes, lives, leave us feeling stressed, and we feel swamped by the mounting pressure to succeed at any cost. And that's kind of how I am at Christmas time, too. Just my to-do list just increases by thousands, and then I don't have any relationships. And so, you know, like, take time to smell the roses. And so sometimes I just really feel like I need this a lot. And maybe, and I don't feel like I'm the only one. Clearly, these studies say I'm not. And then he says that studies conclusively show that the quickest way to high achievement, the best way to be successful, is not a single-minded concentration on whatever you're doing. I got to get that done. I got to get that done. I got to achieve this goal. I got to get my to-do list done. The best way to motivate employees is to, is to not bark orders and to not foster a stressed and feel for workforce. Instead, we need to focus on happiness and optimism and turn, and that will turn our academic and our work worlds upside down when we focus on being happy, building relationships, and making a difference in each other's lives. So that is the first part of his book in a nutshell. And then he has seven different principles that he focuses on. And as I read this book, there are so many things that impacted me. And so we're going to go through this. And this is just the introduction. And the next um, podcast, I'll focus on more of some of the things that he talks about in his introduction. And then the next podcast after that, I think we'll start on the actual first principle So I hope you all have a great week and that you can learn some of these principles, apply them in your lives, and reach out to others and make a difference and create a life by design and have more of all the things that you want. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I appreciate all of you. Have a great week.